Good morning once again. Uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Uh, the main focus of our text, of our, of our time this morning is going to be in Romans 12, 1 through 2. And as Jason said, Jondre got the prize yesterday. Apart from the arm wrestling, we had some good discussions. And in the, the group I was in, we were discussing the topic of identity, uh, which is a, a hot topic in the world today. And uh, one of the things we looked at was how in the beginning of time, in, in the Garden of Eden, um, the identity crisis started there. Uh, why did God make us? Why did God make man and woman and our identity and therefore our purpose? And so a lot of, a lot of that is going to be seen in, in this text. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now this passage is a, an urgent plea from Paul to a specific people, namely the Christians in Rome. And as I said, their identity shapes their purpose, and their identity is shaped by the mercies of God, as we see in verse 1. And what God is doing through this passage, I believe, is, is showing us that what he does in, in showing his mercies to those who will trust in Christ, is that he calls us into a life of worship. And so this idea just forms the, the sermon title, Made to Worship God. Uh, there's, a, there's a big picture idea behind this, as I said, from the beginning of time. But for us as a church, we can also be conformed to the world sometimes. We can also be infiltrated and infected by these identity crises crises that we see going on in the world. So we were made to worship God. And if you're following along and taking notes, uh, the first point here is the call to a lifelong worship. The second point is the cost changing for worship. And the third point is the goal, the glory of the God we worship. So the first point, the call, lifelong worship. Look again with me at verse 1. I'll read it this time from the NIV. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so we have to keep in mind that whenever we see the word therefore, we, we know it's referring to what was previously written. And these two verses act as like a, a transition in this book, in the book of Romans, where Paul has been teaching for the last 11 chapters all about the mercies of God found in Jesus Christ. And now based on those mercies, he's transitioning into how we as believers live in light of that. The, the letter is addressed to the Christians in Rome, and this is important. It's not just addressed to every single person who lives in Rome, but to those in Rome, as verse 7 in chapter 1 says, those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so this appeal is 
addressed to Christians as the, the whole book was written to the church in Rome. Um, again, this has to do with identity. You can't do something that you are not. Your identity as a Christian is why you can live as a Christian. What Paul is calling us to do in these verses is not to, to do what he's calling us to do to become Christians, but based on the mercies of God. And he's appealing not just to Christians in Rome, but also to Christians of all ages, to us as a church, and to all believers. And this is nothing new. If we think back to the old covenants, if we think back to the nation of Israel, it was the fact that God made them his people before he drew them out of Egypt and then gave them the commands that we see given through Moses. Uh, that, that, that shows us again that God creates a people and then calls them to live as his people. I think this is important not to confuse the gospel. And we see this even further than Israel. We, we could go all the way back to the garden, as I said in the beginning. We see the identity of purpose, and the purpose of man was that we were made to worship God. So, what kind of mercies is Paul talking about? Well, throughout the book of Romans, in those 11 chapters, we have things like... What we heard over the summer, if, if any of you were here this, this summer, uh, Pastor Adam and Pastor Brett did a, a series called Gifts from the Cross, going through some of those chapters in, in the beginning of Romans and teaching us about what these mercies are. And it's things like the love of God, because we don't deserve his love. We don't earn his love. We can't, but he chooses to love us. That's one of the mercies. It's things like grace and righteousness from God that comes only by faith. It's things like peace with God, which no one has unless they are trusting in Jesus Christ. It's sonship. It's adoption. No one is a child of God. As Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so that is how we become children, by repenting and trusting in him. And so based on all these mercies, Paul breaks out in chapter 11 in doxology, in praise, and in worship. And then he comes here in chapter 12, and he says that we're called to present ourselves. And notice what he says we're called to present. He uses the word bodies. Present your bodies. Have you ever heard someone say, well, you can't see my heart. You might see the things I say and you might see the things that I do, but you really can't see my heart. I did that and I did this, but that wasn't really my heart. Or perhaps we know people who've committed terrible crimes. And as family members or friends, we may come alongside and we might really think, well, this crime was bad and this, this, this was really bad, but that wasn't the heart of the person. Deep, deep down inside, they're really a good person. That's not the picture that the Bible gives us. The truth is, Paul also says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That purpose for which God made us, to worship him, to glorify him, as, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, eat, drink, rest, play, anything, do all to the glory of God. That original purpose was corrupted. No one has a naturally good heart. And so as Jesus himself says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, 
the body acts. The truth is that what we choose to do or not do with our bodies displays the kind of heart we have. So it's not a matter of separating the body. Some people think separating the body from the heart, for, you know, it's not that. What I'm saying is when, when, when God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's not telling us to separate ourselves into these categories. He's saying the totality of who you are and all you do with your life should be loving God. That's what we're called to as believers. Think about all the different ways that we misuse our bodies. I was starting to put down this long list, and then I thought to myself, before I say any particular sin, we have to remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that no one is exempt from any of these sins. That sin begins in the heart. And that it is a spiritual war for the Christian. And it requires all of us fighting this battle together. And living this life together. To fight against any of these sins. Whether we consider them great or small. So Jesus makes this clear. Not only that out of the heart the mouth speaks. But that even to think about someone with hatred in your heart is murder. That doesn't mean it's as bad as killing someone, but that's the root of the sin. It's in the heart. And so, let's think about some basic things that we need to live, like food. We may look at food and say that gluttony is a sin, which it is. Overconsumption. But we're prone to swing from one extreme to the next. We might, we might stop being gluttonous and starve ourselves to death or become addicted to fitness regimes and consumed, always thinking in our minds, consumed with the way we look. And that's also sin. What about the way we use our mouths? We were, we were meant to use our words to build people up, to encourage people, to stir one another on to love and good works. But we can so easily, without even thinking about it, end up gossiping and slandering and tearing each other down and cursing and swearing because we get a little bit angry. That is not what we're called to do with the members of our body. Paul also says in Romans 6 that you are to present the members of your body, the different things that it it requires to to use your, your words, like your tongue and your mind, and you're to present the members of your body to righteousness. And whatever we present the members of our body to, that is our master, whether slaves to righteousness or slaves to unrighteousness. So what about things like speeding and not wearing our seatbelts while we drive or texting or doing all three at once or the holy version of that, doing all those on the way to church because we don't want to be late? Am I being finicky? Maybe you think I'm being a little bit picky, nitpicky here. But here's the danger of approaching sin like that. And it is sin because in the next chapter, Romans 13, Paul shows that God commands us to obey the laws of the land. So we're commanded to do those things. We're commanded to pay our taxes. We're commanded to not cheat or to not help someone, perhaps who's a client, cheat on their taxes. 
And when we don't do that, for whatever reason, we sin against God. All sin is against God. But what are these regulations put in place for? They're put in place for our good. And God is the only one who can help our hearts change in the way that, that they need to be changed for our good, to protect us. If we hold the phone in front of our face or if we drive way too fast without a seatbelt and we die and we stand before God, he's probably thinking, uh, I told you, do the right thing. And what about sex? Interestingly enough, God created something like sex to be delighted in, in its proper context. So when a husband and wife express their love for each other through physical intimacy, that act in itself is glorifying God. But when acts like that are committed outside of the context of biblical marriage, that is in the category of all other sins. And here's the thing about sin. When we minimize sin, each time we do that for any reason, we are desensitizing ourselves to sin in general. And we begin to form a habit of, of not helping people see their need for Christ. That's why we don't want to be people who desensitize sin. And furthermore, because we were made to worship God, and because we were meant to present the members of our body for all these different activities and more, because we were meant to do that in such a way that our whole life is worship to God, reflecting his honor, because we're doing what he says, when we don't do things in his way, we, we don't glorify him, but we actually glorify ourselves. And this self-glorification is a form of idolatry. So each time we choose to commit a sin... We're committing a type of idolatry. So I'm not trying to be nitpicky with all these different things, but it is important that we think about sin and understand it and understand how to deal with it, which we're going to get to in the next point. I was looking at some studies, and uh, it, it appears that even atheist sociologists will admit that people worship themselves because we are lovers of self primarily. And I guess that's how we came up with the selfie. Um, but yes, real worship of God consists of the whole person. And so we are told to present ourselves to him as an act of worship. And in these verses, in verse 1 in chapter 12, Paul doesn't put any, any boundaries around a time or a place. So here is the, here is, is the point that I want us to take home. Worship does not just consist in the, in the, of the times that we praise God in song. Worship is not just about Sunday mornings when we worship in song. Worship is not just about what we're doing now. And this is part of worship. This is why we gather as Christians on the morning of the week that Jesus rose from the dead to hear from God's word and to respond to him in worship. This is why the church has been structured in this kind of way for so long. 
with the, the pulpit, typically in the old buildings, raised up in the middle because God's word is to be central. And that is the central part. That's the heart of worship. And this is something that we have to remember. We cannot compartmentalize our lives when it comes to this. He has saved his people from their sins to present the whole of ourselves to him as a life of worship. Not a time or a place of worship, but the entirety of who we are. Some translations may say at the end of verse 1, this is your rational service, instead of this is your spiritual or true worship. And they're all true. All, they're all good translations. It is the most reasonable, the most logical, the most rational thing for someone who's been saved from their sins to present themselves for the worship of God throughout their entire life. Did Jesus himself not present his body to us? He presented himself for the entirety of his life to do the will of God. He presented himself for the entirety of his life to live under the power of the Spirit to save us who are not worthy from our sins. And the only proper response is to present ourselves for a life of worship. And the truth is, God is worthy of all we are. And this reminded me of a song from Isaac Watts, an old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Listen to the last line. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this is not a matter of paying back God with our lives, as if we're slavishly paying back a debt that we can, because we can't pay back the debt. We, we don't owe him a debt in that sense. This is like, like last week we celebrated Thanksgiving. This is a Thanksgiving offering. We're not trying to make atonement for ourselves by the way we live. That is finished, as Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. The offering of our lives is a thanksgiving offering. God reveals to John the Apostle what the angels and believers are doing in heaven right now. In Revelation 5, 11 through 12, we have these words. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. When we make the time to think about this eternal destination that we're moving towards, it will produce a heart of worship and that not only our words but our lives will be in worship, will be a form of worship. So based on God's past and present and future mercies, Christians, we are called into a life of worship to our triune God because he is worthy as that text says. And when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is this picture that we get from texts like Revelation 5 that we are praying that God would do in our lives. And so we can be helped by asking the question, does this thing that I'm watching, does this thing that I'm planning to do or doing right now, does it line up with that? Worthy? is the lamb who was slain 
by his grace, we can start to experience that now on earth. And we should be seeking to help others experience it through our lives. Our sanctification is a group project. Our discipleship and our evangelism is done by the church, the whole church. And that is why we all need to encourage each other to walk in these things. A second point is the cost. Changing for worship. So we've seen that the motivation for living a life of worship is the mercies of God. Yet, we should know by now, if we're Christians for any amount of time, we know that we can't simply pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and just make this thing happen. We can't do this in our own strength. And we're all weak, we're all forgetful, we're all limited in what we can do. But God is able to meet our every need. I was reminded of this last week in Amy's testimony at the Thanksgiving service when she so honestly shared that God will help us change in time. Changing for worship, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Changing for worship is something that we can't do on our own. But God comes and meets us in our need. Just like the Son lived the life we can't, the Spirit is in us, transforming us in a way that we can't be transformed on our own. And God helps us change. And it's not meant to be comfortable. No one likes to be confronted. None of us like to be confronted and say, Hey, brother, sister, there's something you need to change in your life. I don't like it, but it needs to happen. If you go to a doctor and the doctor says, I'm not sure you can go on this vacation. You have a terrible disease you need to deal with. You would want to deal with that. And it would be foolish to say, well, no, I'll get to that later. I'll ignore that and go have fun. Because the disease will kill you. And that's the way it works with God. He helps us to see our sin. And he helps to work through our lives so that we overcome and we live this life of worship. And we find joy in him in this life of worship. God is holy. And as seen in the activities within the Jewish temple, every single object that was used for worship was set apart for the specific purposes of God. They couldn't switch objects and use them for different things. They had to be used for the purpose God gave to them. This is the way we should primarily understand the word being set apart, or or the word holy as being set apart. And this begins with God. God is holy. And primarily what that means is that he is set apart. He is not like us. He's in a league of his own. He's in a class of his own. And God is so holy also in the moral purity sense that we can't even see him. We have examples of people who see God in the Bible and they barely survive. Just the sheer vision of God left people like the prophet Isaiah undone. We have this example in Isaiah chapter 6 where he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe is filling the temple and the seraphim are singing back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then he says, I was undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
And this is what we need. We need God to show us our problems. But like the seraphim who came to Isaiah and touched his lips and cleansed him, we need God to come to us. And that's what he does in his grace. So to live lives of worship that are acceptable to God, as these verses are calling us to do, we need God to help us to set ourselves apart, to be constantly changed for his purposes. And this transforming power comes from the Holy Spirit through the Word. The Spirit and the Word always work together. The Spirit does not work by our feelings. This change doesn't happen by our feelings. It is not brought about by our emotions. Um, Nor is it the power of positive thinking that can help your life. Nor can we sort of click our heels like Peter Pan and Tinker Bell and thinking happy thoughts just rise above the problems of this world. That won't do it. Our minds and our happy thoughts are tainted with sin. And so we need the power and the purity of something outside of ourselves to change us. For transformation in our hearts, we need this change to take place in our minds. And notice what Paul says in verse 2 here, that there's a positive and a negative when it comes to being transformed. The first thing that we need to do is not be conformed to this age. What does it actually mean to be conformed? I found a few different definitions, but I thought that this Cambridge Dictionary definition was pretty helpful. So this is what it says, to be conformed to behave according to the usual standards of behavior that are expected by a group or society. And you see this all over the world. The culture is beginning to shape the way we view things as a church. I'm not just saying we as as Sunrise Church, but I mean it is easy for the culture to shape the way that a Christian thinks if we're not being transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what's happening in terms of human sexuality. This is what's happening in terms of things like abortion. This is what's happening in many areas. And we're being told to redefine the way that we understand these things. We need God's help, and he's given us his help through his word if we will rely on him if we will pray to him and ask him to renew us. And this change is seen well in a, in a scene from Narnia. If you've ever seen the, the Narnia movies, there's a part in that movie where, in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace, uh, the little cousin of the four, the four kids in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Eustace falls asleep on a dead dragon's treasure, and he's dreaming about the riches. And during his sleep, he becomes a dragon. And he wakes up and he's freaked out and he's, you know, looking all over the place, flying around and he realizes, I can't change myself. And so he's given up on life and he's lying there on the beach, hopeless. And he opens his eyes and Aslan is standing there. And Aslan approaches him and he sort of starts to stand up, you know, as you do when Aslan approaches. And Aslan sees that he can't scratch the scales off, so he begins to scrape the sand, which is synonymous with his scales being scraped off. And as Eustace has his scales gradually scraped off, Aslan roars 
triumphantly and the whole of the dragon body is gone. He just transforms him by the sheer breath of his mouth. By his sheer roaring, Eustace is transformed back into a boy. This is a picture of the power of the word of God which comes from the mouth of God. This is the power that has changed all of us in this room who are Christians. And anyone who is not a Christian here this morning, this is the power that can change you into a new creation in Christ Jesus. Healed by the sheer breath, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. As we think about Christmas, and we think about the incarnation that Jesus became one of us. It is, a, it is a merciful and a gracious thing that God sent his son to become one of us because it was only in seeing Jesus Christ in that form that the glory of God could be taken. We could not see him otherwise. But he not only showed himself to us, but lived amongst us. And he did that to make us a people who live for his glory, who worship him. Another hymn that shows this power is by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? And the la- one of the last stanzas says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And this is the only right response to the amazing love of God. This is the resurrection power of Christ. This is the power of God through the gospel. And then he grows us and he transforms us by that same power and by those same means. This is like Genesis 1. Let there be light. It wasn't like scratching one of those matches on the matchbox. Like, oh, it didn't work. Let there be... No, when God speaks, things happen. This is the kind of God that we're dealing with. Paul makes it clear in 2 Timothy 3.16 concerning the nature and the purpose and the sufficiency of this Bible we use. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof or rebuking, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So again, God the Holy Spirit, who gave us the Bible, he uses this Bible to start renewing our minds. And as we are renewed, we are transformed. And rather than being conformed to the world, we become conformed to the image of his Son. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 29. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God has also revealed his will to us. He's revealed how to live through his word. 
Now, this, that's another topic that can be touchy. I'm not talking about the, the grand scheme of all time. Often we hear people say, what's God's will? I need to know God's will. And I think sometimes what we mean when we say that is, what's the big plan? Tell me the big plan so I can see all the points down the road and sort of get myself ready. But the truth is, that's none of our business. There is a, a will, if you, if you want to call it that, but I think a plan is a better word. There's a plan of God that really is his business. But he's made his will for how people are to live clear in his word, which requires that we know what's in his word, to live according to his will. And because he's revealed that to us, we can do what Paul says here in verse 2. We can test that by testing, you will know, you'll be able to discern what is the good and proper and perfect will of God. And apply that to our life in specific areas. And this takes time. It takes time to be transformed. It's not like I found a new Bible app. I found a new Bible plan that will take me through the Bible ten times in the year. And since I was ten times more in the Bible, then I'll be ten times more renewed. That's, that's, that's just not how it works. There is a mystery to it. But this is what God has given us. His word. This is the tool of transformation. There is nothing else. And it is the, the, the word of God that the spirit of God uses as we prayerfully intake it together and as we seek to help each other do this. He's given us each other as well as his spirit and his word. He's given us our, our church. He's given us each other to help with this discipleship. But perhaps you're thinking... James, I'm, I'm doing all these things you're saying. I've been doing them and I'm still, I'm really stressed out and I want this area of my life to be different. Not because I'm being selfish, but I would really love it if this good thing happened. And I can't understand why God's not doing it. That's one of the challenges of living in a fallen world. Whether it's bodily problems whether, you know, as in bodily, like, diseases or, or those things, or whether it's a bad relationship that you're, you're in or, or not in anymore, whatever the issue is, we have to learn to live with brokenness in this world. But God promises that he will transform us by the renewing of our mind as we stay committed to the things that he's called us to. And if you're feeling weary this morning, I just want to I, I wanna try and encourage you by reading this verse from Lamentations 3, or these verses rather. Lamentations 3, 22 to 27. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He doesn't say it's easy. He says it's good. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So let us, let us help each other to be patient. As we continue to hope in God, great is his faithfulness, great are his mercies, new every morning. The third point is the goal. Naturally, the goal of all of this 
because this is all of God at work, is his own glory, is the glory of the God we worship. The Father planned and ordained all of this, and he sent his only son into the world to accomplish this, to build his church, which he's doing. He became one of us, as we will celebrate again this Christmas, through the Virgin Mary's miraculous conception and birth. And having become one of us, Jesus was the only man who possessed, maintained, and achieved a righteousness for whosoever will believe in him. And through his obedience to God's law, this was done, always living by the power of the Spirit. And then he was willingly treated as though he was unrighteous. The second song that we sung says, I am chosen, not forsaken. But the only reason, as another song says, that I'm forgiven is because he was forsaken. Jesus was willingly treated as though he was unrighteous, being punished by the Father for the sins of his people. He bore the full wrath of God for those who will believe in him, in essence taking our hell upon himself. And having absorbed that, he died and was buried. And as we sing in in another song, praise the name of the Lord our God. On the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. And he rose from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death for all who believe in him. Forty days later, he ascended back into heaven and sat down with his work completed at the right hand of the Father, where he came from. He and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to indwell and transform those who believe in this gospel. And Jesus is interceding, still working, still serving us all the time. And he is coming back and he will return to take us home to glory and to judge all who reject him forever. Do you know him this morning? Are you known by him? Are you living a life of loving him through a life of worship? If you're not a Christian this morning, this is the big picture. We were made to worship God, but we can't in and of ourselves because we've become sinners. Sin has corrupted the image of God in man. And so we can't approach him in our unholiness. But because of all this that Christ has done, for whosoever will believe in him, this could be the day of salvation for you if you're not yet a believer. And, and, and this would be a great joy, a great joy to us as a, as a church to see this happen. That you would obey this call, this command from the gospel to repent and believe in it. And obey the loving Lord Jesus who who knows your every burden. And he's the one who calls us to come to him. And he's calling right now. He's calling you right now to come to him. He says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And here's the promise. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So this is, this is the, the answer to the question, what is the church? The church is those who have come to Christ in repentance and faith, having been born again by the Holy Spirit, and are submitting to his lordship and growing by his grace and power. God has created the church by his sovereign mercy, calling us into a lifetime of worship. And he's indwelling us. He's dwelling in us, transforming us to become more like him as we renew our minds. The only conclusion then is that God's ultimate goal in all of this is to receive the glory. And that is what we were doing and are doing right now as a church, as we're seated before each other and and before God ultimately. We're giving him glory for who he is and what he's done. That is the call of our life. To, to be those who are called to live a lifetime of worshiping God. To be those who are changing to gradually worship God more efficiently in all the different areas of our lives. Nothing excluded. And to be those who recognize that all of this is for his glory. And to show this gospel to others. Because we were made to worship God. So let's pray to him. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to think about these things, and we ask that you would throw away anything that is not of you, anything that's not helpful, remove it from our minds. But Lord, I ask that you would help us to examine the different areas of our lives today. None of us is exempt from the need to change. None of us will be perfect in this life. We all need your help. Search our hearts and help us to see how we can live more for your glory and worship you in all that we do. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help with this. And we ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.